From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 273 of the Connecting with Walt podcast. And for our very special and spooky Halloween episode, I am joined by our executive producer and my good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, it is good to have you back on the show. Yes, it's nice to be back. So uh, I always happy to come in for for the special episodes. So and this one uh, is is truly a special episode. A lot of people are going to enjoy it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. As we get into the holiday spirit, we are also joined for our Halloween episode by Disney historian and author Dave Bossert. Dave, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. Well, Michael, thank you. And Craig, thank you for guys for having me back on again. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always a delight. And and Dave is joining us to talk about what is a favorite holiday film for us. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Dave's written yet another book. I don't know. I don't know how you find the time for all this. Um, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion. Well, you know, Michael, I have to tell you, uh, uh, you know, it's it, it, it's sort of crazy that I have two books out, two two large art books, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion and my House of the Future book, mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's nor it's not normal. It's just not normal, right? Uh, <laughs> but I wrote the I wrote the Nightmare Before Christmas book five years ago, six years ago. Oh, I wrote it for the 25th anniversary. And there's, there's a long convoluted story about, you know, delays with uh, Tim Burton's designer and he had to get some Dumbo stuff done. And, and, you know, there was delays at Disney editions and then the pandemic hit and they pretty much missed the window at that point. Uh, and I, th- I thought it was, it was dead. Uh, and then I got a call last year saying, no, we're going to put it out for the 30th anniversary. And I was thrilled, but I already had my house of the future book earmarked for the fall of 23 as well. So here I am. I'm trying to do justice for both of them. Good. Well, that means there are two holiday gifts. You, everyone can give their, uh, their favorite Disney fan for the holidays. <laughs> That's so, right. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, where do you stand in a debate as to whether The Nightmare Before Christmas is a Halloween or a Christmas film? Oh, well, that's easy. First off, I, I and I write about this in the book, you know, a lot of people call it a cult classic. 
I don't think it's a cult classic. I think it's a bona fide holiday classic. And in my mind, The Nightmare Before Christmas, I watch it every October. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it's the kickoff to the holiday season, which is Halloween, Thanksgiving, and the Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year period. I usually watch it the day after Halloween because it's a good bridge, you know, between the two holidays. So, Craig, I know you have a lineup of holiday films that you watch every year. Where where does this fall in your lineup? Uh, I am very adamant that this is, in fact, a Christmas movie. But uh, I do watch it the same day. I try to watch it right as we're winding up Halloween. So it's like the movie we'll put on at the end of the night. Uh, because, you know, in terms of the context of the movie, that's when it starts is right mm-hmm. at the end of Halloween. So that's when I allow myself to start to watch it. But too too early into October, it's like it's it, it's all about the build up to Christmas. It's a little too early for me. I can listen to Christmas music this early, but I can't watch Christmas movies this early. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, yeah, I, but, but I have to say, guys, isn't, isn't this a movie? Like, to me, it falls in with the Chuck Jones, the Grinch that stole Christmas, the Charlie Brown mm-hmm. Christmas special, the rank, the great Rankin and Bass, you know, uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and Frosty the Snowman's, uh, holiday specials. Like, all of those films. And even if we go into live action, Miracle on 34th Street. It's a wonderful life. Like I package them all together. I love watching those films all through the holiday season. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I I mean, for me, I never accepted Nightmare as a cult classic type thing because I I went to see Nightmare in theaters with my grandpa when it first came out. And then I remember getting a DVD copy of it. And, you know, I was always along on the journey. And then it like it did hit that point, though, where you started seeing merchandise pop up in in some of the stores in the mall and like. That's kind of weird. I've never seen anything for it. And you did, you did see where it took off in that way. But I think for the kids or young adults, whoever was watching it when it did come out in theaters, I think it's always been a classic for them since, since it debuted. I mean, it was the most breathtaking stop motion animated film of its time at that yeah. point. Oh, I agree. So. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Carol and I took our children to see it when it first came out and loved it. And then when it was released in 3D, and all that, we went back. And so it was um, a lot of fun. I wish it was one of those films that got released to theaters every year. One of those Disney films. Well, you it's know, so it, cool it, on the big screen. It, it does. It, they do it at the El Capitan in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But I know what you're saying, Michael. I wish they did a sort of a wider release, you know, even, mm-hmm. even if it was just for a weekend or something, you know, mm-hmm. uh, so people could experience it on a large screen. Mm-hmm. I happen to be going to see it uh, on um, – October uh, 13th, Friday the 13th, uh, I'm going to be at the El Capitan with Don Hahn to kick off the 30th anniversary screening of the film. And, and you know, they're doing it in 4D. You know, it's the, the 3D movie plus, uh, you know, they've got the, the, the snow machine inside the theater and all of that stuff. And I'm going to be doing great. a book signing there. I should save that to the end. But I just you know, since <laughs> oh, you're talking okay. about theaters, I had to give yeah. it a plug. Well, let's start talking about Tim Burton and what drew him to conceive of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Well, I think, you know, uh, in Tim's own words, I mean, essentially, he he uh, uh, his favorite holidays were Halloween and Christmas. 
And, and so this was a way for him to mash the two together. And, uh, and I think, you know, also when he wrote the poem, uh, you know, the poem was very inspiring for him. Uh, and then when he started drawing the characters, he wanted to go to the opposite end of the spectrum of what Disney does with character design. You know, Dis- Disney, you know, when you look at Disney characters, they have those, you know, large doe eyes uh, on all their princesses, you know, for the most part, you know, especially uh, the contemporary princesses. And uh, and I think he wanted to get as far away from that as he could. And and doing so, he created, uh, you know, Jack Skellington, who had no eyes. And, and, you know, that's like blasphemy almost in the, in the Disney animation world, you know, because I think people were like, how could you get, you know, expression out of that? And certainly when you see the movie, uh, Jack has plenty of expression in his face. Uh, even though he has no eyeballs, the eye sockets are incredibly, uh, uh, pliable and, uh, mm-hmm. full of expression. Yeah. And they're piercing in their own way. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that Tim Burton wanted to get away from the big doe-eyed, you know, like princess-style characters. Everything I've read about him is that he was never comfortable with sort of the Disney look kind of thing. Yeah. He really struggled with that. Yeah, a- absolutely. You know, look, when he got hired in, uh, you know, he was working, uh, he was working under Glenn Keane as an in-betweener and he, he tried and, you know, it, 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 you know, he, he just couldn't, couldn't get behind it, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think there were people at the studio that recognized he had talent. They moved him over and to do, to do character designs and some character development, uh, on the Black Cauldron. And I think the Black Cauldron was, you know, a darker film and more up his alley. Um, and, and then gave him development money to do the short Vincent, uh, which really, uh, I think started to show his visual style. Mm-hmm. Now, did he always envision The Nightmare Before Christmas as a feature length stop animation film? You know, I, I think he always wanted to do stop motion, but initially he thought he, he looked at it as possibly a children's book and, and he couldn't really get traction on that, but he had always wanted it to be uh, a stop motion animated film and not done uh, traditionally. Uh, traditional animation 2d um uh, i think it was suggested to him at one point and then he just didn't really want to do that uh he he has an affinity for stop motion okay now many of us grew up with the rankin and bass stop you know stop motion animated holiday television specials you mentioned them rudolph the red-nosed reindeer frosty the snowman you know, many others. But what we might not know is the amount of planning and effort that goes into creating a stop motion action film. Can you sort of explain, you know, is maybe in a nutshell, what is the process? How does it differ from all other styles? In terms well, of I, I mean, it, it, it's much more labor intensive because, you know, when you're drawing on paper, you can go back in and erase and and make changes and do timing changes and things like that until you get the action where you want it with a three-dimensional puppet you you actually have to animate it and and if you don't plan it out well enough you you're going to get something that isn't exactly what you wanted and you're going to have to do a retake and one of the things about the production of nightmare before christmas was that 
there were very few retakes. In fact, Henry didn't want any retakes because they had a small budget and they really didn't have the time to do retakes. So they have, I mean, you could probably count, I think I can count on one hand uh, the number of retakes they did uh, on, on the film. And, uh, and that might even be high. I think there were two or three shots, uh, that had to be redone. But the fact is that it's such a labor intensive, uh, process of moving a, a three dimensional puppet on a set one frame at a time, uh, that you really have to put a lot of effort into the planning of that. And they do things, the, you know, when when Henry turned over a shot to an animator, he would explain to the animator what he was looking for. They would look at it in continuity with storyboard panels and other scenes that may have already been animated. So they'd sit in editorial and they'd look at the reel and, you know, they'd see what was happening before that uh, shot that the animator was going to work on. And they'd see what was happening at, on the shot afterwards. And so the animator would have a clear picture of what it is, they had to do on the set with the puppet. And then they would plan it out. Uh, now, each animator works differently. Um, uh, when you look at uh, somebody like Eric Layton, who is the animation supervisor, uh, he does extensive uh, thumbnail drawings on the exposure sheet. And the exposure sheet's really your roadmap to the scene. So it, it's a, a frame by frame breakdown of the dialogue and, and it's where you could put notes of what you want the action to be on that exposure sheet. And the first thing that the animator does is he does what's called the pop through, uh, where they take the puppet and they may pose the puppet every eighth frame, uh, in, on the set and they would, they would shoot that. So it's a very quick way of getting um, some kind of a um, uh, what, what we would refer to as a rough test in, in 2D animation, right? Where you're just putting down the, the key poses. Uh, and then the animator and, and Henry would look at that uh, in editorial. And then Henry would give any additional notes or suggestions. And the animator would go back and maybe do a second pop through, but this time it might be every four frames. Uh, and they would review that and, and refine any notes, uh, from that second, uh, that second pop through. And then the animator would go back and they would do the shot, you know, every frame. And so, uh, it, it's, you know, labor intensive time consuming uh there were animators that would work uh throughout the entire day into the evening into the wee hours of the next day to get the whole shot done uh and um it, it takes really i think a very special um artist a very special animator uh to be able to uh move these puppets and have them uh uh animate and do a performance before a camera uh, that's so convincing. And we've all seen a lot of the stop motion films. The craft is just getting so much better with every film that comes out. Uh, Nightmare in particular has a very uh, uh, handmade quality. You, when you watch Nightmare, you can feel, you can really see the, the artist's hand in, in, in making that uh, each shot, you know, each frame of, of film. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this was a significant departure from the types of films the Walt Disney Studio produced. How did they get involved and what prompted them to greenlight this film? Well, you know, I've said this in the book and I'll say it on your show, Michael. Uh, I don't think anybody, any executive at, at the Disney company at that time gave a hoot about Nightmare Before Christmas. Jeffrey Katzenberg just wanted to be in the Tim Burton business. He wanted Tim Burton making live action films because you got to realize Tim was the hottest director at that moment. You know, Tim had he had been fired from Disney after he did the uh, Frank and Weenie live action uh, short, the the half hour uh, black and white live action. Um, he had that and he had his Vincent film and he wound up getting uh, his first feature, which was Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then he did, went on to do Beetlejuice and he went on to do uh, Edward Scissorhands and then he gets Batman and Batman is like the biggest box office at the time and he signed to do Batman Returns. He's the hottest director in Hollywood and all Jeffrey wanted was he wanted to be in the Tim Burton business and after the first Batman, you know, sort of had this meteoric success, um, Tim reached out to the studio to see if he could get the nightmare before Christmas drawings and the poem and everything he had done when he was at the studio and, uh, and asked if they owned it. And they said, of course we own it. And they, and he, cause he wanted to make it. And they basically said, you know, we'll, we'll make it with you, you know? So uh, I think one of the big successes of the nightmare before Christmas is the fact that it was made by a small very talented team of artists and technicians in a warehouse in San Francisco out from the gaze of studio executives who didn't really understand it, didn't really sort of really, I I don't think really cared about it uh, other than it was a vehicle to get Tim back to Disney to do live action films. And, um, and, and that's really kind of the secret sauce of this movie. Um, the, the filmmakers were allowed to make the movie they wanted to make. Um, and, and, and that's the brilliance of it. I was surprised in the book that it was made in San Francisco. And I know that neighborhood where the warehouse was, the studio was, did he choose San Francisco to be away from like the Burbank bubble so that he would have more creative license? No, not at all. In fact, Tim wanted to direct the film, but he it, it became very apparent he wasn't going to be able to direct Nightmare Before Christmas and do Batman Returns. And and it was it was his friend and collaborator Rick Heinrichs, the who's who's been a production designer on many of Tim's films. Uh Rick basically convinced Tim like you can't you, you're not going to be able to do both. You know, and, and Tim finally realized that. And and Rick Heinrichs made the suggestion of Henry Selleck. They were they were all classmates at Cal Arts. And uh and so uh Rick went up to visit Henry, who lived in the Bay Area. And and just so your listeners <clears throat> know, the Bay Area has a contingent, a a community of stop motion artists. Uh there was a commercial house Colossal Colossus or Colossal. Uh, up there that was doing uh, Pillsbury Dough commercials. Um, you had Art Cloakey Studio over in Marin uh, doing the Gumby and Pokey at the time. Uh, Henry was doing MTV Claymation bumpers. 
uh, for MTV. And, you know, it, there, there was a contingent of stop motion animators up in the Bay Area, and there still is. Uh, and, um, and so it seemed very natural to do, uh, the film up there because A, once Henry was on board, he lived in the Bay Area and B, because he lived in the Bay Area and worked in the Bay Area on stop motion, he knew the whole stop motion community. So he he could hit the ground running and pull a team of people together. And that was really, I think, very important. Uh, and the fact that it was out of the gaze of the studio in Burbank and up in San Francisco, I think that was just a quinky dink, as mm-hmm. they say. You know, I mean, it was it, it was a coincidence that, you know, really uh, was favorable for for that film. So what was it about Henry Selleck that prompted Tim Burton to hire him as the director? Well, I mean, uh, you know, Henry uh, was doing stop motion and and had made a name for himself in stop motion, uh, even that early on uh, within the animation community. And so, you know, from that standpoint, it seemed natural to go to somebody like that. And, you know, he was a CalArts alum. Uh, you know, the, they kind of, you know, Rick knew him and Tim and, and Henry kind of knew each other, not well. But, you know, this was, uh, this was one of those things where you go out to people that you either know or are somewhat familiar with and what they do when you're pulling a team together. Mm-hmm. So how, what was Tim Burton's role after he hired Henry? Cause he was busy with the Batman film. Yes, he was busy with the Batman film, but he also was able to still, uh, he was a, the producer, um, the original storyline, the original poem was his, and that was the jumping off point for the film, uh, and, uh, or the basis, I should say, of the film. And, uh, also, uh, Tim went to, uh, Tim started with trying to get a script together. Uh, and so he worked with a screenwriter, uh, who it didn't work out. It just wasn't working out. So, so Tim scrapped, scrapped that idea and actually went to another collaborator, Danny Elfman, who he had done, you know, he had worked with Danny since Pee Wee's Big Adventure. And then he worked with Danny on Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands and Batman. So he went to, he went to Danny and, uh, and they started talking about the project. And really it became evident that it was going to be like somewhat of an operetta, if you will where there would be a series of songs that would propel the story forward. And so Tim started to talk to Danny about each little section of the story. So he started from the beginning, explained the motivation of the characters, who the characters were, what the storyline was uh, for that little section. And Danny would go off and write a song and Tim would come back over and he'd listen to the song and, uh, they, he'd then tell Danny the next section of the film and Danny would go off and write another song. And they did this over a period of time and came up with the 10 songs that basically tell the story, if you will, uh, of the nightmare before Christmas. And, uh, and then after they had the songs, they brought on Caroline Thompson, the screenwriter, and she, she wrote the connective tissue. 
the dialogue uh, uh, that went between those songs. And that's really how this film got built, if you will. That's fascinating to think that the songs came first. Yes. And then, then, then the, the sort of the story in between uh, was developed. So yeah, and, it seems very and, different. And, yeah, and, and there was there were multiple departments, multiple aspects of the film working at the same time, because as those songs were being written, they still they had already hired story people who were starting to storyboard. The first thing that they did was they storyboarded um, uh, the test scene. Uh, and Henry had hired Eric Layton and they had worked on, uh, doing the test scene, uh, to show the studio. This is how it's going to look. This is what we're going to do. And, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a process to getting these films greenlit. You know, uh, when, when you, when you hear that term greenlit, you know, it's not some mogul in an office going with his thumbs up saying, great. Let's make this movie start today. You know, it, it's sort of this rolling, uh, the, the, this rolling development that's happening where they say, okay, bring these people together. Let's do a test. Let's storyboard this section. Let's put some reels together. And you're kind of going through these different gates of approval, if you will, and showing, uh, you know, uh, the higher ups, uh, what's, what you're doing until you get to a point where you're hiring more people and you're actually putting, you know, a schedule together, you know, and, and the movie just moves forward. Mm-hmm. So that that's basically, or or it doesn't, you know. I mean, some some films move along for for years. I, this has happened at Disney Animation many times, where a film is in development for three or four years, and then they finally kill it and say, "Nah, it's just not working. We're not going to make this movie." You know, it's rare, but it does happen. But but that's that's kind of the process. Um, it, it's organized chaos. <laughs> and this is one of my favorite film soundtracks is Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas. In fact, on Halloween, I have This Is Halloween on a loop playing in front of my house as the trick-or-treaters come up the walk. Nice. So, and have and have a lot of pumpkins carved to the char- different characters. Yeah, you know, uh, Danny, Danny Elfman was very generous with his time. I, I, I had the opportunity to, to go over to his studio, and, uh, and I spent uh, quite a number of hours with him uh, talking about uh, his creative process in writing each of the songs and sort of talking about each one of the 10 songs. And a lot of that interview is in my book in, in the section on music. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it, it, it's really, you know, the, the book, I, I wanted to write this book, uh, from, from the vantage point of just telling the story of the filmmakers and the artists and how they made their movie. Um, you know, I, when, when Disney editions first came to me and, and asked if, asked me if I'd like to write this book, I, I said to them right out, out of the gate, you know, I worked on the movie and they had no idea that I had worked on the movie. <laughs> I, I did very little. I always want to point that out because I did just a tiny little bit of work on that film to help them. Uh, but uh, and and I say that because I don't want to take anything away from the incredibly talented people that spent like three years making that movie. Now, did they still have an overall concept of the film story, or as they did these musical sequences, did the story then evolve as they connected them? 
Yeah, because because the original poem that Tim wrote uh, was, in fact, a full story, even though it was on a sheet and half of paper, you know, or a sheet of paper. It, it, it was the story. So it was a matter of taking that and expanding that out into, you know, whatever it is, 87 minutes uh, and telling a deeper, deeper aspect and de- doing character development and all of that. But, but there was essentially what we would refer to as a beat board. The beats were there for the movie, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and you just had to flush that out. Okay. Now are you going to tell us what you did on the film? I, I have a credit as a snow animator. Uh, uh-huh. I, this was so, so when the film was being done up in San Francisco, it, it became evident that there, the Walt Disney animation studios in Burbank, uh, because we had the computer animation production system, the caps system, which was a digital system, uh, we could help them out. Uh, so it was really, uh, largely, um, uh, the back end departments, the camera department and uh, scene planning and checking and some of the ink and paint folks, those were the ones that really did some of the, um, the help, uh, which was like wire removal or removing a rig that was in the frame that held the puppet that might have been going. You know, if, if you see a stop motion puppet jumping through the air and he's not touching the ground. How's he up there from frame to frame? There's a rig in place. So it was, you know, some of it was just digital removal of wires and rigs. Um, There was one shot where the camera got bumped for some reason. There might have been, uh, you know, a, a minor earthquake or something. But when they got the film back from the lab and they looked at the scene, there was all of a sudden a little bump. Uh, in the camera. And so digitally, they were able to go back in and, and smooth that out. So you, it's undetectable. Um, uh, so things like that, that just made it easier for them. Uh, so they didn't have to reshoot a, sh- a, a scene or something. Uh, but in, in the movie, there's a sequence where it starts to snow in Chris, uh, in Halloween town. Uh, and, you know, they, they were kind of, scratching their heads about how they were going to do that. And it was really about creating some digitally generated snow uh, that could be composited into those scenes. And, and that's exactly what I worked on. Uh, and I worked on that with a very talented software engineer named Trin Huang. And he and I together, uh, he was writing the software and I was essentially creating the animation uh, we, we created those elements that were then composited into those shots, including where the snowflake lands on, uh, Mayor Two-Face's tongue. There's mm-hmm. a, there's like a single snowflake that comes down. I mean, that was animated. So the, the, uh, stop motion scene was animated first. And then we used, uh, the, uh, plates or the, the images frame to frame to be able to put that snowflake so that it landed right on his tongue. I think you're underselling what your uh, role was in the movie. Just <laughs> yeah, no, really. No, it was it was a very small, very very small. I have to say, but I was but I was so honored. To, I, I was so honored to be uh, part of part of that. You know, to to do some little contribution to the film. You know, yeah, yeah. but 
uh, it's a great scene. So uh, your your impact is way bigger than you thought. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Thank I you. agree with Craig. Now, in your book, Tim Burton's yeah. The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, you wrote a lovely tribute to Joe Ranth. Yes. Would you tell our listeners I, actually, about I wrote him? Three, I, I wrote three tributes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a tribute to Joe Ramp, who was, uh, the story supervisor. He was essentially the head of story. Um, and, you know, he, he was, everybody that talks about Joe, I, you know, I, I was friends with him, but I wasn't good friends with him. And there's other people who were very good friends with him, but I was friends with him. And even though he was living in Northern California and he was working at Pixar and he was working over at, uh, on uh, nightmare before Christmas, anytime he was down in Los Angeles and I'd run into him at some animation event or a screening or whatever, it, we, we, we had that kind of friendship where, you know, you just, kind of pick up from the last time you saw them. And that could have been four or five months or six months ago or a year ago. Uh, you just kind of pick up and chat and catch up and all of that. Um, he, he was just probably, I think, one of the best, if not the best, uh, story guys uh, for our generation. Uh, and, you know, John, John Canemaker, the animation historian, wrote a fantastic book called The Two Joes, uh, about Joe Grant from the Golden Age and Joe Ramft, really from the Renaissance of animation. Uh, and uh, Joe, Joe had a great sense of humor. He was an incredibly nice guy. He was a towering individual, very tall, very large guy, uh, but gentle as could be, um, just a really wonderful person. Uh, and, and because, you know, he, he died uh, in an accident, very untimely. Um, I just felt like putting a sidebar into the book, uh, as a tribute to him was important. And, and I did the same for Kelly Asbury, who was, um, uh, one of the assistant art directors and also uh, a classmate of mine at Cal Arts. And I, I really wanted to have a, uh, a sidebar on him. And then I did a sidebar on um, uh, John Barry, uh, who um, uh, was one of the animators and uh, who died prematurely uh, as well. Uh, I didn't really know him, but from all the animators I interviewed for the book, his name kept popping up and they all had funny stories to talk, uh, to tell about him. And also the fact that he was probably one of the most talented stop motion animators uh, of his day. And while he was working on Nightmare Before Christmas, he had a short film called Sandman that got nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, and Tim Burton sent him a bottle of champagne and, and a note of congratulations uh, on on that nomination. Uh, so I, I just wanted to give a shout out to those people. And, and you know, sadly... Uh, Pete Kozicek, uh, who was in charge of the camera, uh, for, 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 uh, Nightmare, um, for the visual hex camera, uh, he, he just recently passed away. And, you know, I hope, I hope if there's a second printing of this book that I can do a tribute to Pete as well. Now, Walt Disney believes that to really get to know your characters, you have to start drawing and animating them. But where in the process of creating the characters does the selection of the voice talent begin? Where did it start for Nightmare? And how did the voice talent affect 
the design and characters characteristics of everyone. You know, I think it's different on every picture to to some degree. Uh, honestly, uh, I think that um, you know when you're developing a new film with new characters, you're you're working out what those character designs are going to be, and, and and they're doing scratch dialogue. So you're just grabbing people out of the hallway sometimes and saying, "Hey, you know, you you have a funny voice. I I want you to do a you know this dialogue so that we can slug it into our reel." And I think they, you know, it's a process of developing uh, those uh, ideas, if you will, you know, because you're you're always looking at a character and say, well, he's kind of like so and so or kind of like this person. And then they start to get. You know, uh, character, uh, they, they start to, to, to get the idea of certain characters or certain actors being the character voice and they start pinning up headshots on boards with character designs. Uh, and then there's an audition process. I mean, like I said, every film is different. Um, I think, uh, you know, like on Aladdin, uh, Eric Goldberg did an animation test with a piece of dialogue of Robin Williams. Uh, it was from, it was from a previous Robin Williams film and, and Eric did a little test animation with that dialogue. And I think everybody was sort of like, Oh my God, the genie is, it's Robin Williams. He's the genie, you know? So I, you know, again, it's just very different, you know, on nightmare before Christmas, Danny Elfman was slated to be the, the speaking and singing voice of Jack Skellington. And early on, they realized that he was just going to be the speaking voice that they needed to get Chris Sarandon or an actor who had, you know, acting chops uh, to do the speaking voice of Jack. So it's, it's very, it's different from film to film. I'll put it to you that way. Okay. Now in the film soundtrack, Star Trek, Star Trek fans like myself will recognize the voice of Patrick Stewart as narrator at both the start and at the end of the film. So, and that ending narration served as like an epilogue, but it's not in the film. Do you know why that was removed? You know, all I can say about that is that it was probably a creative choice for some reason. Uh, there was, there was a lot of people, uh, who were being auditioned to do the voice of Santa Claus, uh, before they, uh, settled on, um, uh, Ed, is it Ed Ivy? I think it was right. Ed, Ed Ivy, who does the voice of Sandy, Sandy Claus. Uh, anyway, uh, I think his first name was Ed. I know his last name's Ivy, but anyway, uh, it, you know, the, the, there's, there's all kinds of creative choices that are being made behind the scenes that aren't always documented. So the reason why, uh, Patrick Stewart was brought in to do, um, to do that sort of, uh, opening narration and the epilogue, uh, might have been a good choice. In fact, some of the things I've read, it was very, you know, he, he, he had a, a you know, a great voice for storytelling. Um, but whatever the reason was, they, they changed it. You know, mm-hmm. and I think partly because it was supposed to be Santa Claus doing that narration, right? Especially and, at the end, and, it's clear yeah, it's Santa. And, and, and I think that when they got uh, Ed Ivy finally to be the Santa Claus voice, um, uh, they they might have just decided uh, we don't want to do that. 
mm-hmm. for whatever reason. I, yeah. you know, again, the, a lot of these things are very subjective, you know, when you're in the, in the throes of making it. And who created like the, what was the vision for the, how Halloween town and Christmas town would look? I mean, they do such a good job of contrasting them. So, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, again, that's all the visual development that goes on. And so Tim, uh, Tim had some early ideas of what it was going to be. And of course you want to contrast it. You know, you want, you want Halloween town to be this dark and, you know, monochromatic palette, whereas Christmas town, you want it to be bright and happy and, you know, primary colors and all of that. So, uh, but, but all of that stuff springs from, uh, the visual development that was going on with, uh, 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 Dean Taylor, who was the art director, uh, Rick, uh, Heinrichs, who was, uh, visual consultant who really did a lot of production design and, and helping to translate Tim's original, very flat two dimensional drawings into a 3d world. Um, and, and I think, I think Rick deserves a lot of credit, uh, for helping to guide the artistic team that was building the sets and the art directors and the assistant, you know, the art director and the assistant art directors in how those sets were being painted, uh, because he really understood Tim's, uh, um, design, uh, and he understood how to translate that into uh, uh, into a three dimensional world. And and how big were these sets? Because they look fairly large. And I've seen and the photos in your book, they look pretty large. And you know, how did they manipulate yeah, them? Yeah, I, I, I mean, those, them? those were those were. I mean, it was a really talented group of set builders, and those sets were built so that they could be pulled apart. So that a portion of uh, of a set could be used on another stage, uh, and if you can imagine, when I say stage, they were in a warehouse, so they were using black curtains, uh, duvetine curtains that were just absolutely black uh, uh, as dividers for dividing up areas that had sets in them. So, uh, and, you know, outside each one, there'd be a, a, a red light if they were filming. So, you know, people couldn't come in and all of that. But it was, um, those sets were built rock solid, by the way. Uh, they were built so that the animators could climb all over them. They were built so that the animators could go underneath them. There were trap doors in some of the sets so animators could pop up in the middle of it to move a puppet and then close the trap door. Um, many of these puppets, I, I, I would say probably all of them, uh, had to be screwed down to the sets. So there was a screw from underneath that came up into the bottom of a foot to anchor the puppet to the set so they didn't fall over. Especially Jack because yeah. of the way he was designed, you know. I was just thinking that. How big yeah. were the puppets? You know, the puppets I I really weren't that big. Um, you know, Jack was maybe like 10 or 12 inches tall. Uh Oogie was the biggest puppet. Uh and there's pictures of uh him being cast uh in a mold. Uh, in the book. And so you can see how big he was in comparison to, uh, you know, the, the puppet makers. Uh, and there's also a great shot of Eric Layton on a set 
you know, manipulating the Oogie puppet. Uh, and you could just see how big it is to Eric. So, um, it, at the time, I think Oogie was the largest, uh, stop motion puppet that they had ever animated. So now were, was everything animated by hand? Were there any mechanics involved with them? What was the process? Every, everything was done by hand. Every puppet was animated by hand. There was the, there was no mechanical, you know, robotic type of thing that would move the puppet automatically. They were moved by an animator. That's uh, remarkable. And, and <laughs> when you think about that, it's not just, you know, moving an, you know, moving a puppet that's, you know, walking across a set. It's not just his legs. His arms are swinging. His head may be turning. There's overlapping action of his clothing. Uh, you know, so there, there's a lot of things for the animator to keep track of as they're, they're going frame to frame. Yeah. I know that's amazing. That, and, it, you know, that they just know, okay, this little movement, this piece of clothing is going to change. And at the, at the Walt Disney Family Museum once, and they were doing, uh, they had an exhibition on stop um, action animation, stop motion animation. And uh-huh. they had a set of face plates for Jack with different expressions. So were all the expressions created just by switching out face plates on the characters or were any of them animated? Or? Well, uh, e- each puppet was different, but for Jack, um, I, I have the numbers in the book. There was an incredible, I don't know, 144 different heads, but Jack's he- entire head would be changed out. Uh, going from one frame to the next, to the next, to the next, there would be a sequence of, of heads that would create, you know, an O shape on his mouth or have his eyes wide or have him frowning or whatever. Um, so they had all of these heads and they would replace each head. If you look at, uh, Mayor Two Face, he has sort of a, uh, a, uh, outline, uh, that goes around the outer part of his face. And so that was an easy design for them to pop the face out and pop a new face in without changing the head. So uh, each puppet is essentially different and different in how they uh, go about uh, uh, animating the uh, the facial expressions and the mouth shapes. Okay. Then you, you talked about how laborious – um, it is to film. So like the opening sequence, this is Halloween, which is one of my favorites in the, in the film. How long did it take the animators and everyone to create that one scene? I, I couldn't tell you exactly on, on an individual scene, mm-hmm. but I can tell you from start to finish, the movie took about three years, started in 1990 and if they finished in 1993. So, That's you know, remarkable. There, and, and I, I've taught when I was talking to some of the animators, you know, there were scenes that they could do in a day and there were scenes that could, you know, would, would take a couple of days to do, um, or longer. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it really depended on the complexity, how many characters were in the scene, um, what the scene length was, um, you know, so there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, so to tell you exactly how how long one particular shot, I'd have to know who the animator was, and we'd have to call the animator up and say, <laughs> how long did it take you to do that? <laughs> we'll wait, Dave. We'll wait. <laughs> now, since The Nightmare Before Christmas was an unusual film for the Walt Disney Studios, 
were there challenges when it came to marketing, creating toys and other products and with the theatrical release of the film? It, they didn't know what the hell to do with this movie, Michael. They really didn't. You know, uh, I think they were perplexed by it. They didn't know how they were going to market it. They knew that and they made the decision they weren't going to put the Disney name on it because they thought it was going to be too frightening for their core Disney audience. Uh, so they released it under Touchstone. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, because they didn't really know what to make of this film. They didn't know how to sell it. And so when it went out to theaters, it did okay in its initial release, but it didn't do great. And, and this was a movie that I think could have done great at the box office and it just didn't. But the, the, I think the wonderful thing about it is that it had legs and in, mm-hmm. in movie terms, that meant that it, 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 it ran. It, it, it lasted a long time. It's still going 30 years on. And this movie still is a must see at the holiday t- season. It, it keeps expanding its fan base. Um, the people that were seeing it as children like Craig, uh, um, you know, uh, are now taking their children to see it or will be showing it to their children. Uh, and, and I think that's what's really amazing about it. And it wasn't that many years ago that Disney stripped Touchstone off and put Disney on it. So now if you see the movie, it's Disney. Mm-hmm. Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. You know, yeah. so, uh, and, you know, uh, the park experience during the holiday season wouldn't be what it is today without the big Nightmare Before Christmas overlay on the Haunted Mansion and in in the New Orleans Square area uh, at Disneyland. And uh, and they do it over, I believe, in Tokyo. They do. Uh, I've seen it. And, and it's because and, it's. And- well, because it's based, you know, their mansion looks like the one in Florida. Yeah. It's yeah. cool to see how it could have looked in Florida if they ever decided to do it. Well, I heard they're going to do it in Florida. Really? That's what I've been hearing. Wow. I've been hearing, I've been hearing rumors of that. And, and by the way, you guys are all plugged into all of that kind of stuff. You, <laughs> you should go dig and find out if there's any truth to it because I've heard it. I, hey, and Craig. I usually hear I usually hear things last. <laughs> Craig, Craig, start uh, start start digging with your contacts there. But I, but I think try to stay I think out of rumors. <laughs> honestly, I I do think they should be doing it in Florida. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I think there's enough there's enough pressure to make them do it. Yeah. You know, the I think I think the fans want it. Well, that's where it's going to be very interesting because, like, this year for the Halloween party, Jack and Sally have had longer than average meet and greet wait times, which is hilarious because out in Disneyland, you know, they meet right off the courtyard, I think, in New Orleans mm-hmm. Square. And yeah, like, <clears throat> the last time I did it there, I waited like 10 minutes. The line can be really long in Disneyland, though. Just depends. It can. In Florida, though, I feel like. There's no other way to get nightmare that there's there's just an even bigger thirst for it in that way. So uh, I, I expect it's going to ramp up at the Christmas party like it always does, too. But what's going to be really interesting is to see what the reaction is at the Jollywood Nights party at Hollywood Studios, where they're doing the nightmare before Christmas sing along that 
retells the story, but in a different way. I mean, if that uh-huh. if that ends up being the most popular thing there, then at some point the writing's going to have to be on the wall. Like, okay, we can't keep ignoring this movie. It's like it was one thing when they thought it was a cult classic, and you know, oh, it's not a great movie, but people are embracing it. Uh, the fact is, it's a great movie, and it just. Mm-hmm you need audiences to see it and understand it. I mean, Leica has been fighting that battle with every single movie they've produced where they make the most amazing stop motion movies, the most amazing animated movies that just no one ends up going to see and completely misses out on it. And, you know, nightmares, nightmares in that group where it took a while for people to find out how great it is. And now that they do know they just they want it and it feels like Disney's just like constantly teasing it but never going all in. One of my favorite things at Mickey's um, not so scary Halloween party at the Magic Kingdom is during the fireworks show. They have this amazing Jack Skellington puppet that comes out on stage and he looks like Jack Skellington. I mean, he's he has the right body shape and height and all that. It's remarkable. So well, now that we've talked about the creation of the film, let's talk about the creation of your book, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, Visual Companion. So was creating this book as laborious as creating the film? Yeah, I, you know, look, I, I think if you're going to do a book right, uh, it requires you invest a lot of time. And, you know, for me, I invested a lot of time going around and talking to as many of the artists and craftspeople as I possibly could. I, uh, you know, I did a lot of interviews via Zoom. Uh, I did, uh, or Skype at the time, I think. Uh, and I did, uh, uh, you know, I traveled a little bit. I, I, I did a, uh, you know, I spent a day up in San Francisco with Henry, um, interviewing him. Uh, uh, I was over in London on other business and I wound up interviewing, uh, Rick Heinrich, who was living over there at the time. So I got to spend a couple hours with him record. And, you know, I did all of these interviews. I recorded them all. Uh, and so I then had transcripts made so that I could, you know, really lift out, uh, quotes, uh, accurately for, uh, you know, the text of the book. So I really wanted the, I wanted the story to be told through the, through, uh, somewhat through the eyes of the filmmakers. You know, I, I was able to interview Tim Burton. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I spent some time with, uh, Danny Elfman. Uh, Henry Selleck, uh, um, Kelly Asbury before he passed away, uh, was a huge help. Um, you know, a lot of the artists that worked on it, Jor- Jorgen Klubin, um, you know, some of the puppet fabricators, uh, some of the production management people. So I really wanted to get sort of, uh, a- a- as rounded a story as I possibly could. And that just takes time, Michael. You know, mm-hmm. when you do these books, I mean, pe- people were saying to me at the Disney Annex Expo that I went to last week, uh, you know, they were saying to me, uh, you know, what's your next book? What's your next book? You know, you're going to have it out next year. You know, <laughs> I mean, some of these books, you just can't pop out a book every six months. You know, it may seem that way because I got two books out right now, but it, it's not. It, it just it requires a lot of research, a lot of time. And and you want to put that effort in so that you tell a rich 
uh, deep story uh, about whatever the subject matter is. And, and so, you know, I spent, I spent a good uh, two years on the nightmare before Christmas book. Uh, and, uh, and I think I, well, you know, look, the public will be the judge of it, but I, I think it tells the, the story as complete as it possibly can be told. Oh, absolutely. And the great thing about the book is that it's, it's great for fans of the film, but we have, we have a number of animators and student animators who listen to the show. This is a terrific book for them to, 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 to see how a different type of animation is created, how it was created for this film. Now, yeah, ab- absolutely. Now, in the title, it says Visual Companion, and it, it wouldn't be a Dave Bossert book if there weren't some fantastic images and photographs. Can you talk about that? How you compile? Well, I, you know, one of the things that I, I think I'm becoming known for and what I pride myself on is I want to put in any book that I do stuff that people have never seen before. I mean, I think that's what's, uh, that's important. Uh, because as you know, and as many of your listeners probably know, uh, there's plenty of books out there where you just see the same images. It's the repeating, you know, all these images, you know, Walt on the stagecoach, Walt in front of a, you know, a vintage convertible, you know, Walt with the characters around them. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, how many times have we seen all of these images? I want to show things that people haven't seen before. So when I was interviewing uh, the filmmakers and the artists that worked on this movie, at the end of the interviews, I always asked, hey, do you have any personal photos or, you know, ephemera or, you know, something you saved uh, that you would want, would like to share in the book, you know? And just about everybody was like, oh my gosh, I've got all these great photos. You know, we had this party and, you know, I have shots of so-and-so on a set. And, you know, those were, that's the gold in this book. You know, because you're getting to see candid photographs of artists working on the sets and animating scenes and, uh, you know, group shots and, you know, and, and there were some things I, I, I wish I could have fit into the book. I mean, you know, I have, uh, I have a picture of some of the nine old men visiting Skellington, um, uh, with some of the contemporary artists. And that would have been fun to put in the book. But, you know, sometimes, you know, especially when you do a book for Disney, it's kind of like, you know, you only have so many pages and they're not going to budge giving you any more pages, mm-hmm. you know? And when I do a book, you know, like my House of the Future book, it's the amount of pages it needs to be to tell the story. Right, right. Yeah. And what I love is you have a number of, um, I guess it's concept art where I love to see the the lines of the artists and all that instead of just the clean, you know, image. I don't know. It just tells so much more about the character when you see those lines that always get erased away. And you have a number of those in the book, which are terrific. Yeah, they're rough and, and and fun and they have a lot of energy to them. Uh, but I, you know, again, I think throughout the book, uh, you know, I think, I think people are going to look at this book and they're going to go from page to page to page and they're going to see stuff they've never seen before. They're going to learn something about the whole process that they might not have known. 
and and they're going to get some real insight into you know what went into each of these characters with the character voices and uh with the 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 individual artists that were animating these characters it's um it really is, uh, I think, fun. And and also at the end of the book, I wanted to pay homage to the fans. Uh, there's a two-page spread of people with uh, Nightmare Before Christmas tattoos. The, there's another two-page spread with fan art. Um, you know, we talk about the Hollywood Bowl uh, live shows. We, we talk about, you know, the 3D conversion, you know, the annual uh, uh, things at the Al Capitan, like I'm going to do on Friday the 13th mm-hmm. <laughs> with Don Hahn. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of facets to this movie. Um, and, and I wanted to try and put as much of that in as I possibly could. Right. And you mentioned your other book. You've been on the show before to talk about the House of the Future book. But since since you're here, do you want to talk a little more about that? Yeah, so I'm 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 totally thrilled because House of the Future is releasing to the general public on uh, October seventeenth, and um and I'm super proud of the book because you know I never had the opportunity to see the House of the Future. Uh, it was long gone by the time I got to Disneyland here in Anaheim, California, and so I wanted to create an experience in a book that was as immersive as you could be with a book, and and get the feel of what the tour would have been like and that's exactly how the book is laid out uh after after a couple chapters of uh backstory and how things got built and all designed and built um there is an actual map of the tour so where you would have entered the house of the future and how you would have walked around and then exited and i laid out the chapters based on that tour map uh, so you'd see the kitchen first, then you'd see the children's bedrooms, and then you'd see the parents' bedroom, then you'd see the bathrooms, and then the living room. And I go into great detail about what's in each one and uh, show as many pictures as possible of everything, uh, including the remodels. Uh, there was a, there were several remodels mm-hmm. that happened during the 10 years that it was at Disneyland. And, and I, I was very gratified uh, to hear from people at the Disneyana Expo uh, um, uh, on October 8th that I was at where – they uh, not only had memories come back to them, flood back to them, but they they said they some people said I never saw it, but I feel like I have seen it now, mm-hmm. you know. And that was that was gratifying to me because that was the goal of the book. I I just wanted to document it. It was it was a cool concept, and and I even say by the way, Michael and Craig, at the end of the book, I think the Walt Disney Company should build one of those <laughs> or two or three. On the, on the property at the Contemporary Resort and allow guests to stay in that overnight. Like, let them, you know, essentially book it so that they could spend a week in the house of the future. Maybe, I think it would be, I, I, and maybe build it, maybe build it this time with more sustainable materials, yeah. you know, but, but build that design. You know, I, I could see the Disney Vacation Club doing that, and sort of like the tree houses at Saratoga Springs, they could have these houses at the Contemporary. That's part of. That. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be cool to to maybe do it uh, at Castaway Key uh, and let guests spend a couple nights on Castaway Key? 
I, I mean, I've heard that they were going to build some some hotel rooms there. Uh, oh, really? but, but I, but, you know, again, uh, you know, to me, it's a great experience. It's an opportunity, you know, and, and by the way, it wouldn't get destroyed by the hurricanes because the wrecking ball bounced <laughs> off of it when they tried to take it down at Disneyland That's right. in 1967. So, I mean, it's built, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty strong. Well, for somebody that did experience the house, several times. That book took me right back. I had memories in my brain that that book brought to the surface and conversations I had with my mother as I was going through it, especially a reaction to the kitchen. And so the book is wonderful, not just for people who never experienced it, but for those of us who did. And now, you know, we have that as a memory we can share. You know, I can share yeah. it with my granddaughter because just telling her about it wouldn't make much of an impact. But now sh- with the book, showing her and telling her what her grandmother said as he went through it, it's wonderful for that. I I, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. And that, that's been the feedback I've been getting from a lot of people. And, uh, you know, I was thrilled to be able to do it. And, and, and it sort of satisfied an itch for me uh personally and you know when i when i pick topics for books i I, i'm picking things that i'm super interested in and uh, and that 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 fire helps feed the passion of you know doing all the research and finding all the 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 little tidbits of information that people might not be aware of in fact i don't think anybody ever identified some of the furniture in that uh house of the future and I have, you know, I, I named the furniture designers and some of the furniture is still available. They're still making it, huh. you know, uh, the Eames chairs are still being mm-hmm. made. Um, the, uh, coconut lounge chair, which was, de- de- uh, it was, uh, designed by George, uh, George Nelson for Herman Miller. Uh, you know, the, that, that, coconut lounge chair is still available from Herman Miller. And they were gracious enough to give me permission to, to reproduce some of the uh, chair images that are in the book. Uh, the, there's a miniature cabinet that was also a George Nelson design. There's, they still make that, uh, you know, the swag leg desk that was off <laughs> the family room uh, in the house of the future was also made by Herman Miller. And there's, uh, there's an updated version of it uh, that they still sell. So it, it's kind of cool to be able to, to, to tell people about that stuff, you know, because no one else has. No, no. And it would have been lost to time. If you hadn't yeah, written the book. Absolutely. So how can our listeners order Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion and the House of the Future book? Okay. So the Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion is from Disney Editions. It was released on September 26th, and it's available everywhere. Barnes, I, people have sent me pictures of themselves with the book at Barnes and Noble in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, up in uh, uh, Kentucky, and you know. So you can go to your local Barnes and Noble. Look, you're holding yours up. You can go to the your local Barnes and Noble will probably have it. Uh, and, um, and and if you want a signed copy, I actually have uh, themed book plates for the nightmare before christmas so they can go to davidbosser.com and under the free stuff uh there's a pull down menu just click on book plates 
follow the, the instructions at the bottom and just send me a note saying, I want to sign book plate uh, for Nightmare. And uh, and just mail me the stamp self-addressed envelope, and I'll get you a signed book plate. You peel off the back, and you stick it right in your book. So um, they can do that. Uh, I'm obviously doing some book signings into the fall. Um, so I don't know when this show is airing. Do you, it's it's going to air right before Halloween. Okay, got so it. So this is our Halloween so, episode. <laughs> okay, got it. So, uh, you know, so that that's what that's the nightmare before Christmas. Now, the House of the Future book, um, that releases on Tuesday, October 17th, so they can get it anywhere. You can go to your local bookstore and have them order it. They can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million on their websites. Um, you can also order a signed edition, author signed edition at the oldmillpress.com theoldmillpress.com. If you go there, you can order it now and and you'll have it uh, within a couple of days. And and Michael, for your listeners, I will tell them if they use the code FRIEND5, they'll save $5 off the retail price of the book at theoldmillpress.com. Thank you. That's very generous. I appreciate that. Friend five. Remember friend five. that. All cap all capital letters. Friend F R I E N D five. The letter five. Or the number five, I should say. That's great. Now, do you have um are there any future projects or any projects you're working on now since they take years that you can tell us a little about? I, I have multiple projects that go <laughs> out to twenty thirty right now. Uh, so I'm working on a bunch of different book projects, uh, and every one of them is at a different stage. You know, there, there's the hunting and gathering period of uh, that I do on every book, um, and uh, I, I will tell you, there's going to be a second volume of 3D uh, Disneyland. There's going to be another another volume huh. of that. Craig's face um, lit up. Over I, that. I, I have been I have been playing around with the idea of possibly doing a 3D Disney World, uh, but uh, that that's that's sort of a question mark in the back of my mind right now. Uh, but I'm also uh, I've got uh, quite a bit done on a Disney World War II project, and I'm not going to say much more about that other than. There is a tremendous amount of stuff in there people will have never seen before. Uh, and uh, I'm just excited about it. I'm trying to get that book out for 2026, uh, excuse me, 2025, which is the 80th anniversary of the end of World War II. So um, stay tuned to that. And uh, there's a bunch of other projects. There's some uh, non-Disney books I'm doing and... Uh, I'm just excited because I I get to pick and choose only those projects I really want to do. I don't have somebody lording over me saying, you have to do this. And you're kind of like, you know, uh, kind of uh, half interested. And you're like, I don't really want to do that. No, every single project I'm working on, I'm super excited about. Good. Excellent. And not only do you write books, you have a podcast 
Do you want to tell our listeners? Yes, about I do, that? and and thank you for that because I think the I think the, especially the Disney podcasting community is very special because everybody gives each other shouts out, you know, shout outs. Everybody's, you know, uh, it, it's like all you, you you help one person, you're helping everybody, you're lifting all boats, you know. Mm-hmm. And so um, I uh, we're we're actually October this this year is our third anniversary of the Skull Rock podcast. Uh, and I do it with, uh, Al John Go, uh, who also had the Disney List podcast. And mm-hmm. he also does dining, dining with Disney with his wife, Kristen, and, and a guy named Bubba. Uh, and so, um, Al John is like the wizard behind the curtain for the Skull Rock podcast. He's such a great guy and he knows all the technical ins and outs. And I book a lot of the guests. I, you know, I mean, that's, I, I'm just sort of reaching out to all the people I worked with over the years and I'm just bringing people on and we have so many guests booked into next year. Uh, and we're just having them tell their story and, and, and I think their stories are inspiring. I think their stories are insightful uh, on, uh, all these various beloved Disney projects we all had a chance to work on during the renaissance of animation. I think um, it's like an oral history of animation for the most part. Uh, And uh, we've been getting a lot of great feedback from people. So the Skull Rock podcast, you can get it wherever you get your podcasts. I think we're on every (laughs) single podcast platform uh, like you guys are, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'll be giving connecting with Walt a shout out and talking about this experience that I had when I uh, when I get with Al John to do next week's show. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Appreciate that. So, well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us uh, today to share uh, stories about the Nightmare Before Christmas. It it's uh, it was always my pleasure, Michael. I I love coming on and talking with you and with Craig, and uh, and I have to say, you have such a soothing voice. <laughs> That's what you I'm do. told. That's what I'm told. You, you have such a soothing voice. It's a, it's like a pleasure to be on here, <laughs> you know? Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, we'll look forward to, you know, give me a heads up when you're ready to um, start promoting your next project. And we'll have I, you back. You know I will. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. And good luck with the podcast. Three years. Congratulations. And in Congratulations. the podcast community, that is huge. And really? Because I, I kind of feel like we're just youngsters compared to you old timers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but and and good luck with the sales of the books and and with your new projects that you're working Thank on. Thank you so much, Michael and Craig. It's just such a pleasure to be here with you today. And I appreciate you having me on and uh letting me plug the uh Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion and the House of the Future. Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. Well, Craig, that was a terrific um, interview. So, oh, for sure. Anytime Dave's on, it just is. Yeah, you know, it's just a pleasure to hear the stories pour out of his mouth. Uh, he's he's one of those uh, he's one of those people that you don't really have to press him. You can ask the simplest question and you're going to get way more than you ever asked for. And it's just Mm -hmm. a treat listening to every second of it. And, you know, the fact that he's living and working through all of this and just lends to, to all his life experience. I I just love when we have him on. 
I do too. Yeah. And on October 29th, I'll be at the Walt Disney Family Museum for a special presentation on the making of The Nightmare Before Christmas. And Henry Selleck will be there, as well mm. as some of the animators working on who worked on the film. So oh. I'm sure I'll talk about that in a future episode. Cool. Oh, yeah. I, I want to hear what Henry Selleck has to say. I mean, yeah. it's. I feel like it kind of like underwent a little bit, but I mean, it it should be Tim Burton and Henry Selick's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm-hmm. I agree. The same way we honor Walt and Roy at the end of the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you there. And now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Well, Craig, would you like to go first? Since it's been a while. Uh, I would absolutely love to go first. And I'm going to start with a little bit of sad news for this week in Disney history. Uh, Just past uh, the Halloween date of October 31st, on November 2nd of 1986, Paul Freese passed away. And of course, uh, it's, you know, for... Disney and Halloween fans, it's a little ironic that he passed just after Halloween because, of course, we know his wonderful narration from the Haunted Mansion on top of being uh, Ludwig von Drake and lending his voice to so many other commercials, Disney projects, just so, so much. So, uh, of course, he did become a Disney legend later on. So he always has that going for him. Uh, But, yeah, he Paul Freese passed away November 2nd of 1986. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I have to go with the theme of this week's show. <laughs> so, and you probably, when you saw this, you thought, this is the one Michael's going to choose. Um, October 29th, 1993, Tim Burton's animated The Nightmare Before Christmas debuted in theaters. You're nodding your head. You knew I was going to grab this one, didn't you? Yeah. I, have I had two. I had, there was another <laughs> one I almost chose, and you probably know what that one is too. Um, of course, we just talked about it, the stop-motion animated musical dark fantasy film that's directed by Henry Selleck and was produced and conceived by Tim Burton. And, you know, we, we didn't get, you know, we talked about, it was released by Touchstone, um, that it featured, but and, you know, we got a little into the voices, especially Danny Elfman, who scored the music, but so many of the other voice actors you know, really gave personality to this film, like Chris Sarandon, you know, Catherine O'Hara, William Hickey, Paul Rubens, that I always forget was part of this film. Yep. So, um, so the idea, uh, you know, as we were talking about, it started as a poem that Tim Burton wrote when he was at Disney in the early 1980s. And, 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 you know, Disney at first didn't quite know what to do with it. Like we're saying, they thought it was too dark and scary. So they released it under the Touchstone um, label. And, you know, now this has become, I think, kids of all ages watch this film. And even when, like my granddaughter, when she was barely starting elementary school, had already seen the film and loved it. When we took her to Disneyland when she was... Gosh, we went to one of the Halloween parties when they were at Disneyland. And she was, I think she was like three years old. It it was, all she wanted to do was meet Jack and Sally. And we were in that line. And it was a long line because they were sort of new 
in their yeah. meet and greets. And Jack spent 10 minutes with her. And, and, um, and we just saw all the people behind us thinking what's going on here. <laughs> but she got yeah. into such a deep conversation with them. And, and Jack really got into it. And they started talking about the set and the different pumpkins that were on their, their meet and greet set and all this stuff. So it's really a special memory for me. Oh, uh, 100%. I mean, I, I I shared a little bit during the show already, so I won't rehash. But I mean, it's still so important. Like this year for uh, Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party, Rhino, Kylie, and I, along with Rory, we all dressed up as Lock, Shock, and Barrel. And then <laughs> uh, Rory was Oogie Boogie. So we were all uh, going around to his commands. And it's just, it's it's a movie that's, just been so important for me for so long that uh it's 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 in that special category of you know it it might not it might not make my top 10 best of all time list but it's really really good Mm -hmm. i agree i'm looking forward to watching it again this year and i listened to the soundtrack year round so, so yeah, and it comes up in my list since I listen to Christmas music year round. So some of the songs uh, pop in and in and out for sure. But I, I think my favorite memory, though, was uh, I, I might have told it on this show before, but when uh, it was probably 2015, 2016, uh, one of Kylie's favorite movies is The Princess Bride. So at the mm-hmm. uh, at the fan convention here in Orlando, Megacon, they had a, a group photo with Carrie Elways, Chris Sarandon, uh, Wallace Shawn, and I believe that was it was just the three of them for the Princess Bride, and we did it. But um, you know, when we showed up for the photo, Wallace Shawn was just he was that happy short guy exactly like you always expect him to be from the movies he's in. And then, you know, obviously the voice of Rex, but, um, but, uh, Carrie always just had like sunglasses on and was kind of acting like he was too cool to be there. But Chris Sarandon walked over to Kylie to like pull her into the photo and said, now what's your name? And like, it was one of those things where he was saying, and Kylie, she said, Kylie, it's like, oh, it's so nice to meet you, Kylie. And it didn't click with her, but we got out of there and I was like, I don't think you realize, but Jack Skellington just kind of like spoke to you <laughs> one-on-one and asked your name in that way. And she didn't realize that he voiced Jack with it. It just, you know, it's that's for her, Chris has always been Humperdinck. So it once she pieced it together, it was like, Oh my gosh, that's you wish you had a recording of it in the moment, yeah. but it was yeah. uh, it was really cool. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. So, now we've talked about the the original Haunted Mansion film with Eddie Murphy. Have you seen and, and our thoughts on it? Have you seen the new one? I have. <laughs> and what do you think? I did not care for it. Really? Um, Why not? I So, I'm still kind of piecing together my thoughts with it first off i thought it was way too long and it wasn't paced well um mm-hmm. I, really I agree with that the first so we had to split it up over two nights just because we're exhausted all the time now uh, but the first like the first night when we were watching it 
we got to a point where we hit pause and we were like so sure we're like yeah there's only like 30 minutes left in the movie so it'll be fine and we looked at and we're only 45 minutes into it and i was like (laughs) oh no we're we're not watching this all in one night i'm like i don't understand how it could have went there was so much and it was so involved and it was like this then this then this then this and it was like so much was happening but there was no time passing and so that was kind of the the one thing that stuck with me even then the second night when we had our second big chunk to watch it was like it, just, it feels like i'm watching a full other movie and like i switched out the vhs uh on sound of music or titanic from one of those movies that had two vhs's back in the day but mm-hmm. i just confused a lot of the younger listeners so i'm not i don't i'm not going to explain it uh but anyways that was the first issue that i had with it and then second it just i thought tonally it was all over the place like it seemed it seemed to me that they wrote the script and it wasn't very funny and it was more serious, more what people expected from a Haunted Mansion movie, wanting mm-hmm. that Guillermo del Toro movie that we will never get. I think that's what it probably was on paper. And then Disney went and said, that's great. Let's make it a comedy, though, and let's hire comedians to be in it. And then the problem is they didn't update the script to then be funny or they realized well if you try to go really funny like we did with eddie murphy then it's uh it's going to be a disaster so then it's like okay well, well they'll find moments to have like little chuckles here and there and so then that's that's to me where it, it next went off the rails where it's like i'm watching danny devito owen wilson uh um tiffany haddish and i'm not laughing at anything besides just kind of you know, smiling here and there mm-hmm. at a little joke. And then like the Hatbox ghost, the voice that they did with Jared Leto, like I- I'm still confused by it. That deep gravelly CGI voice that I guess kind of sounds like him on the ride when he does the laugh, the <laughs> but it just, it felt so over the top. So I enjoyed the nods. You could tell that Justin Simeon, oh, yeah truly loves mansion and wanted to represent so much in there. So it was really fun watching it for the Easter eggs, but like this, this to me is going to just be added next to the Eddie Murphy one where it's like (laughs) they tried and I'll watch it probably every other Halloween, but they they're in my opinion, they're over two on making a good haunted mansion movie. And I'm, I'll keep my fingers crossed for the next one. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed it more than you did. What bothered me, and I agree with a lot of things about pacing and all that, and that it was sort of uneven in its storytelling, but bothered me was the verbal product placement that drove yeah. me nuts. The, yes. I got this notepad at CVS. I think she said that three times about that darn old notepad. And we it's not we went out for ice cream. We went to Baskin Robbins. And and it was just that was throughout the film, and that took me out of it. Yeah, every time they did that. Oh no, and it happened a lot. Even like the scene, uh, the scene where Rosario Dawson was cooking in the kitchen, and like every single label was placed directly at the camera. That I'm like, come on, have show a little bit of restraint with the product Mm -hmm. placement and the advertising throughout like did you clearly realize that it wasn't going to make money so you had to recoup it as much as possible right away with with name dropping all these businesses but 
yeah, it that that got to me too. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So, so catch us up on what's new. It's been a while since you've been on the show. Yeah, just uh, you know, staying busy, trying to you know start back from uh, start back from the very bottom with uh, the at least the main podcast, the Diz Unlimited podcast. Now we uh, relaunched a couple weeks ago virtually, and. You know, that was not our intended goal. Our our hope was that we would wait until we were back in the studio together and be able to do it that way. But uh, we underestimated the the uh, the market in Orlando for actual uh, for actual business space that is affordable in a nice area and, you know, accessible for for those people who need it and have, you know, basics like have uh, private bathrooms because I thought that that would have been a, like a guaranteed thing. And then it's like one place we found was perfect. And they're like, oh, also, yeah, too. Like uh, you'll have to share this room and then everyone shares bathrooms. And it's like, oh, uh, that's, you know, it's, it's some sacrifices uh, John was not willing to make. So uh, virtual has been been going okay and uh, we're getting our feet back under us it's uh you know it's hard to please i don't want to say it's hard to please anyone but it's hard to please everyone because so many people as we as we we took our break and we stepped away from it a little while uh you know i read a lot of feedback on what people wanted to see and the one guaranteed thing was that uh, there's definite categories where in each one you're not going to please someone. And so that's kind of where we're at now is trying to just find that right balance where everyone seems to be a little bit happy. We're trying to have as much fun as we can with it and not stress out too much. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, I during our time off from from recording the podcast on Tuesdays, I was just trying to, uh, you know, relax my brain as much as possible and turn off from that. So uh, by the time John gave the word like, oh, no, we need it back, even if it is virtual, it was like a three week turnaround to try to be like, OK, let's figure this all out and get it in there. So did not give ourselves nearly enough time, probably should have been working on it more while you know, we were off, but at the same time, sometimes you need, you need time to reset, especially when, uh, when, when we were going through what we were going through. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's, that's been, that's been a lot besides that, you know, I'm just trying to enjoy a beautiful Orlando fall where the temperature's all over the place and, uh, you know, teasing you with the potential good weather a couple of days and then being right back to being Florida and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, just trying to enjoy life as much as possible. So, have I missed anything big? Oh, in my life? Yeah. Not not really. So, just plugging along, you know, working and all that and heading out on a cruise, which has, uh, with the recent world events, has changed significantly. Yeah, insane. So, it, is, it is insane. So, um, and yeah, tragic. You couldn't have predicted the timing. No. No. Um, anyway, but other than that, no, everything's just been just been going along. I lead a very yeah. <laughs> uneventful life. So no. that's anyway. I've met a, I met a, a number of listeners. Yeah, 
Well, I don't know if it's relaxing, but, but <laughs> I, um, I met a number, I've met a number of listeners at the Walt Disney Family Museum. And every time it's like more and more come up and say hello. So that's always nice. Yeah. Uh, to see folks. So excellent. But, but anyway, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on various social media platforms at Teleclaster, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, X, uh, Instagram. I'm on all those places. And then you can always email me, Craig, at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt or Twitter X, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes and link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 